One woman, one horse, one goal. 48 states for domestic violence awareness. Hello and welcome to Have Horse Will Travel, the official podcast for the Centaur Ride. I'm Meredith Cherry and this is my co-host Apollo. This episode is all about stories. I will be sharing numerous stories with you today, most of which are from my short story collections, Have Horse Will Travel, just like this podcast title, and they are all available on Amazon. And there are four different volumes so far. The fourth one is just newly released, and they are broken into sections of the travels so far. So the first book is Pacific, and the second part is Mountains, third part is Heartland, and the fourth part is Great Lakes. So you can find all of those on Amazon, and I will be sharing just a few of the many, many stories. Oh, there's probably around 30 stories per book, so this is definitely just a very small part of what you can read about in those books. So uh, I thought it made sense to start out with the first story of the first book called Adventure Awaits. January 1st, 2017. The sun was just peeking over the horizon when my alarm went off, but I was already awake and trying to decide whether I was more scared or excited for the day to arrive. This was the day my grand adventure would begin. I had spent three years preparing for this day, and for a long time it had felt more like a dream than a real plan. As the day got closer, it still seemed like it couldn't really happen, like that day would never actually arrive. Yet here it was. All my gear was packed, my maps were prepared, and my first and second night stop were organized. In the afternoon I would ride eight miles to the Penn Valley Rodeo Grounds for my official send-off event and then another couple of miles to our first stop at Jane and Andre's house. First, though, I had to muster the courage and steady my nerves enough to get out of bed, drive to the stable, and saddle up for my first day on the road. Obviously, I succeeded at taking that first step in the morning, or I wouldn't be sharing this story with you now. As it has turned out, scared and excited were both reasonable emotions for this adventure. Each day has brought its own challenges, risks, joys, and memories— Let me share a few of those memories with you. Tall Horse Short Rider When I was selecting a horse to accompany me on this journey, I knew I needed one big enough to carry both myself and our gear, as I would not be traveling in a manner that would be suitable to also bring a pack horse. I succeeded in that respect, but to my everlasting chagrin, I forgot to also account for my own diminutive height. I am only 5'2". Apollo, at the tallest point on his shoulders, called the withers, where a horse's height is measured, is also 5'2", or, in horse terms, just shy of 16 hands. Once I add on the saddle, I have to climb to a point higher than the top of my head. The tall pack behind the saddle only adds to the challenge when I swing my leg over. On a good day, I can find a rock, a curb, a picnic table, a bench, or a stump that I can use to make mounting up easier. In some parts of the country, and on some unlucky roads, there is nothing suitable, and I have to rely solely on my own strength and flexibility. I don't always ride. Sometimes I need a break from the saddle, and sometimes Apollo needs a break from carrying me. Sometimes the road is too dangerous to risk riding along. Sometimes I just feel like taking a good brisk walk. And sometimes, 
People call the police or jump in their cars to catch the loose horse on the road. Since my head can't be seen over the saddle and packs, anyone who sees Apollo from the other side while I'm walking, too, can't see me. Unless they look very closely at the moving legs and notice there's an extra pair, it looks for all the world like Apollo is taking himself for a stroll. Hail! By the time we reached the college town of Corvallis, Oregon, it had rained more days than not, but nothing worse than rain. No lightning, no snow, no hail. I didn't expect that to change on this particular day, which started off bright and sunny, and would end that way too. Apollo and I had a pleasant ride through town. We made a much-needed stop at the bank, something I was not able to accomplish often, found a little free library so I could pick up a new book to read, and then noticed an Indian restaurant along our route where I decided to stop for samosas to go. In the ten minutes I was in the restaurant, the sky clouded over, and before Apollo and I made it even halfway across the parking lot, the sky let loose. Not rain this time. Hail. Within minutes, the ground was covered in pea-sized ice, and it kept coming. I tried leading Apollo under the awning outside a restaurant, but the noise of the hail on the material over us scared him. I hung on as he bolted, slowing him down enough for me to guide him to another safe place to wait it out. Neither of us liked being pounded with hail, but standing in the middle of it made him mildly agitated, though not full-out afraid. For the duration of the hailstorm, I walked him in circles in the delivery truck area behind the shopping center to keep him as calm as possible. As suddenly as it had started, the storm cleared again, leaving behind a thick layer of hail that looked like fresh snow, but a whole lot more slippery and lumpy, and we continued on our way. This next story is about the first city that we rode through. This was a part of the ride that I could probably spend a whole episode talking about stories just from our first time in a big downtown area. This one's called Ready for Anything. I began to worry as I neared the edge of the Portland metropolis. Apollo and I had successfully traveled along a multitude of major highways and roads and through towns both big and small. Portland is not just a big town, it's a major city and a whole different ballgame for horse travel. This is the big leagues. Although I had been offered a trailer ride across the city, I wanted to at least attempt the ride. I had checked city traffic code, and horses were not forbidden on the streets, which is a potential problem for me in some major cities. Legal though it was, it was also going to be highly unusual, even by my strange standards. In theory, the city is big enough that it would take three days to cross by horse. I would be doing it in two. I was only able to find a place that we could stop for the night for the first leg of the ride. This would bring me to Tualatin, a major suburb just a few miles from the southern Portland city limits. From there, I could ride through downtown and into East Portland. At that point, I would have to accept a trailer ride from local helper Missy because there was nowhere to stop with a horse for another 20 miles, which would have been the third day's ride. The first day, and most of the second day, was fairly smooth going. It was drizzling, as usual, for most of the time. People were really excited to see a horse in the city. In fact, this turned out to be a big problem. I had not accounted for the amount of time I needed to cover the miles to East Portland and also the time to stop and talk to everyone I met along the way. In a city, that can mean a lot of people and a lot of time. The final and biggest challenge was downtown Portland. 
the skyscrapers, the traffic, the people, the construction, the clippity-clop of Apollo's steps echoing down the concrete canyons were all just fine for my amazing road horse. He was a little nervous of a building lined with flags which were all billowing in the wind, but even with that he did okay. He did not trust the public transit light rail cars which glide along tracks throughout the city streets, but we were able to do the same stop-and-watch technique as with all the semis and other things up to this point. A side note, since I did not read you the story about the stop-and-watch technique, this is a training technique that I came up with to help Apollo deal with scary things that he saw, which I will be talking about in a future episode. Back to the story. I had hoped to be able to detour for donuts when downtown but he was doing so good that I didn't want to risk ruining it by keeping him there even longer. Plus, all the chatting along the way meant it was getting late and we had to cross a bridge and more city before night fell. As it was, we reached our rendezvous point just as it got dark and as the light rain turned to a downpour. I was rarely as relieved as that evening when I took off his saddle and headed out of the city. Oh, there's a lot of good stories that I wish I had time to read to you right now from that first book, but maybe I'll do another episode later with more stories from that book. But let's move on to the second part, mountains. So this is the section that went from Seattle to the Great Plains over all of the mountain states and starting with the Oregon Trail. When I planned my 10,000 mile route, side note, it's going to be more than 10,000 miles. But when I wrote the book, I was hoping it was still 10,000. So, okay, starting over. When I planned my 10,000-mile route, I took a lot of factors into consideration. Terrain, resources, donut shops. Not once did I look at the historical trails that had once dotted this country. When the western United States was first being settled, there were, of course, no roads. During the massive migration of the mid to late 1800s, routes became established. These trails, such as the Oregon and California trails, the Pony Express, and supply trails such as the Santa Fe, were more suggestions than roads, and in some places were miles wide. However undeveloped and imprecise those trails were, though, they did have a lot in common with each other and with my own choice of route. They were chosen because they were the best way to travel through a region using animal power. This meant that they, and I, stuck to the flattest and most direct path, and as close to water as possible in this arid climate. Soon after I crossed into Idaho and began following the Snake River, I realized I was also following the Oregon Trail. This part of Idaho is very flat, much easier to ride across than the mountains to the north of the Snake River Valley. Though I could not access the river for water, the settlers would have, Instead of the river, I relied on the towns that had sprung up along the valley as those migrants put down roots in that fertile landscape. The further I followed the trail, the more I appreciated the wisdom of those early travelers. I saw the buildings they left behind at the best watering holes and tracks where their wagons had worn permanent grooves into the barren flats. I saw these things because I, with my modern technology to assess the best way to cross the land, decided to go the same way that they did. Like the technique I mentioned, 
a few stories ago for scary moving objects like semis and light rail cars. This one touches on another technique that I taught Apollo, and it's just a fun story. Again, these techniques I will talk in more in depth in a later episode when I talk about Apollo's training. So this one's called Apollo's Taste in Art. Apollo had become, through daily exposure to all kinds of new situations and objects, quite the brave horse. He doesn't scare easily anymore, but there are still times when he looks askance at something before he'll walk past it. When it comes to decorative landscaping, he is quite the art critic. People decorate their lawns with all sorts of things. So too do municipalities in their public parks and town centers. This art may look pretty, or pretty awful, depending on your tastes, to us humans. To a horse, though, they just look out of place. In the wild, out of place is a sign that a predator could be lurking nearby, or that the out of place thing is the predator. When something doesn't look right, that's the time a wild horse needs to be on the alert for danger. These out of place objects that we use to decorate our living spaces could be anything from a large rock placed in the landscaping to a life-size statue of a deer, moose, or dragon. Of course, I'm assuming here that we know the size of a dragon to make it life-size. But, moving on with the story. He has also spooked at street signs that were shrouded by a hedge until we got close enough for the sign to jump out at him. I once heard the story of an equestrian who joined her local trail riding group because her horse needed practice on the trails. She was sure that this horse was afraid of tree stumps, which can have a similar dangerous appearance as a landscaping boulder. However, this horse was not afraid of dogs, so she came up with a solution. Every time she saw a stump, she would bark like crazy to trick her horse into thinking that the stump was a dog. The consensus was still out as to whether that worked. Luckily, I used a different solution for Apollo. We play the touch-it game. This is something I taught him in the arena before we started our adventure. Starting with something he was not afraid of, I would point to an object and say touch it. If he touched it with his nose, he got a reward. Once he got the idea, he was able to do the same thing with items he was nervous about. Eventually, he learned to do this for the simple reward of a praise and a pat. This became a useful cue on the road. When passing a bad piece of lawn art, I could tell him touch it. He might hesitate, but within a minute or two of encouragement, he would walk up and put his nose on it. If there ever comes a time when that doesn't work, though, I'll remember to bark. The smallest town. Welcome to the town of Yates. Population 1,000 cattle and two humans. I had been instructed that to get to my next night's hosts, Tony and Kathy, I should ride to the town of Yates. What no one told me was that they are the town of Yates. I thought I'd seen small towns before. Heck, having grown up in the greater Los Angeles area, I thought that the town of 13,000 people where I had since moved was a small town. A few days before Yates, I had been in the small town of Roy. That was the smallest town I had ever seen. It had a few small blocks, a K-12 school, two or three churches, a general store, and a cafe. The cafe didn't even have a name. The sign over the door simply said, Cafe. Why would it have a name when it was the only one in town? Yates, I was soon to learn, was truly the smallest of towns. It used to be bigger, before the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression drove people away. 
It never recovered from those hard times. The only lived-in house where I was going to be stopping was actually another mile or two beyond the old part of town. A few falling down walls remained of the original buildings, but Tony and Kathy did not know what they had been. A post office, perhaps? What looked like it had once been a general store was now a cattle shelter. Yates had become a literal cow town. Moving on to the third book, Heartland. This is the section that I rode in my second year on the road. It extended through most of the Midwestern states, the flyover states, if you will, although no one there really likes that term. This is one of my favorite Apollo stories of the places that we've stayed. It's called From Fright to Friend. Most horses are afraid of llamas and alpacas. Some of them are afraid of sheep. Occasionally, they're afraid of dogs. Apollo thinks all of these are fine friends. Pigs, though, he has to agree with the other horses. They're terrifying. Or at least they used to be. He wouldn't get within 20 feet of a pig until we got to our stop on the south side of St. Joseph, Missouri. Our hosts, Michelle and David, had a variety of livestock, a veritable personal petting zoo. The only pen with enough extra room for Apollo, though, was the pig pen. Is he going to be okay with that? Michelle asked. I shrugged my shoulders. What other option did I have but to try? He'd gotten over his fear of semis. He could certainly learn to deal with a small herd of porkers. Once he was unsaddled, I led him into the pen. The half-dozen potbelly pigs squealed at this intruder and scurried away to the far end of the pen. Apollo froze, watching them cautiously from the gate end of the pen. For the next ten minutes, they circled closer and closer, Apollo and Piggies both ready to run away at the first sign of trouble. Then a magical moment happened. Apollo and the bravest pig touched noses. Suddenly, they were all friends. For the rest of the afternoon, they played tag. Apollo would slowly chase the pigs around the pen, never faster than the pigs could trot, with his head dropped low to nudge them. Then... They would all turn around, and the pigs would chase Apollo. Again, he would only go at their speed, around and around the pen. The next morning, when it was time to go, the pigs all came up to the gate where Apollo was tied just on the other side, and they stayed with their new friend all the way through saddling until we rode away. I wonder what the horses at the boarding stable back home would think if I was to get him a pet pig of his own after this adventure is all over. I have a lot of good bridge stories. Here's one called Police Escort. Would you look at the size of that bridge? There's a picture. Obviously, you can't see it. It's it's big. From start to finish, the Vermilion Bridge over the Missouri River is almost a mile long. One lane each direction, lots of traffic, and only a small shoulder and waist-high guardrail. I don't think I'd like to drive across it, much less walk it, and there was no way I was going to ride it. Unfortunately, it was our best option for getting to South Dakota. The next bridge was 20 miles in either direction along the river that makes up the state's southern border. Fortunately, I had met the local sheriff the previous day when I had stopped at the convenience store in Newcastle. Before heading off for lunch, I had asked him if I could arrange a police escort over the bridge, and we had agreed to meet at the Nebraska side at 10 a.m. the next morning. That same day, I had met a cowboy poet and photographer, Earl, who wanted to get some photos of Apollo and I along the road. 
Knowing that the bridge could make for some interesting moments, I invited him to join my escort too. The poet hurried ahead to the Dakota side of the bridge, and the sheriff fell in behind as I led Apollo out onto the bridge. I tried not to look down and hurried him along as fast as I could, jogging at his side while encouraging him into a trot. A side note, the reason I was leading him and not riding him, in case it wasn't clear from the bridge description, was because the guardrail was only my waist high and I'm pretty short. If I was riding him and something happened and I fell off, that would have been potentially fatal. So there was not a chance I was going to sit in that saddle on that bridge. So back to the story. I heard him along as fast as I could, jogging at his side while encouraging him into a trot. Bang! Apollo and I both jumped as one of his bags fell off. I stopped him, backed up to retrieve the bag, reattached it. Walk, jog, trot, walk, jog, trot. Bang! This time neither of us jumped, but I did grumble a bit. Never before had any of my bags fallen off, and I had double-checked the clip when I attached it not a minute earlier. I reattached it, triple-checked the clip, and set off again. Walk, jog, trot, walk, jog, trot. Bang! I never did figure out why that bag kept falling off. In our years of travel, it only happened on this bridge. We walked the rest of the bridge, despite the traffic lining up behind us and my own personal terror of being so high in the air, and I carried that darn bag in my free hand. Apollo makes himself at home. Apollo has stayed in several backyards, but one in particular stands out in my memory. At Katie and Gage's home, Apollo also got to stay in the garage, which had been turned into a stall for the few nights we were there. The garage had two overhead doors, so by leaving the side on the driveway closed and the door on the yard side open, he could wander in and out as he liked. How convenient. Most of the time, he spent grazing or dozing in the sun, but he also found plenty of ways to entertain himself. He carefully poked around on the garage shelves, which had been cleared of dangerous items, to see if there was anything good to eat. He raced back and forth with the dogs on the other side of the fence, which is a game he had often played back home with the stable owner's dog. Best of all, our host's kids frequently went out to visit him and give him treats. It didn't take long before he figured out which door they came through and seriously considered inviting himself into the house when it was open. And there's a picture here, which you can see in this book or in the children's book, Apollo's Alphabet, which is of Apollo with his whole head inside the house trying to get in and checking out the kids for treats. It's pretty cute. Finally, here's a few stories from my newest volume of short stories. This fourth part is called Great Lakes. And this first story is one that I love to retell. And I'm not even going to attempt the accent, so it's probably one I should leave for you to read and imagine, but I'm going to try it anyway. It's called Mershams. That's spelled M-U-R-S-H-U-M-S. Mershams. I found Mershams in the rumbles. My host launched into a new topic of conversation around the dinner table in his thick rural Indiana accent. What was a Mersham? Or a brumble? I was trying to decipher this new vocabulary when he turned to me. Do you like Mershams? Um, I hesitated, still not sure what he was talking about, and carefully choosing my words to get more information without hopefully sounding like an idiot. 
I don't think I've seen one before. You've never seen a Mersham? Everyone's seen a Mersham. They grow in the Brumbles. Oh, Brumbles are brambles, I realized, in case you don't know what that is either. A bramble is a thorny patch of bushes, blackberries, for example. But I still didn't know what a Mersham was. He then proceeded to explain Mershams to me. I can't recall how he described them, but it took a while before it dawned on me. Mushrooms! As it turned out, it was morel mushroom season, a very exciting time of the year for foraging wild mushrooms. It had been a cool, wet spring, and the morels were especially large and plentiful. In this part of the country, when it's morel season, and when a person talks about wild mushrooms, you can assume they mean morels. As a side note, my own Californian accent has sometimes been difficult for some people to understand in areas of America where the regional speech is thickly accented. In these places, I find that if I affect a draw, the same people have no problems understanding me. Sailor Apollo Apollo's first ferry ride in Seattle, Washington, probably didn't feel any different to him than a normal trailer ride because he spent the whole time in a horse trailer. His second ferry ride from Rising Sun, Indiana to Rabbit Hash, Kentucky was very different. He was well prepared, or at least as well prepared as a horse can be. The metal ramp and boat floor were no different than the many metal bridges he had crossed by this time. The slight sway of the boat was not much more than the suspension bridge over the Missouri River into Omaha. The sight of the Ohio River rushing by was not much closer from the ferry deck than the hundreds of rivers we'd ridden next to or over from the bridges or roads we'd already traveled. The roar of the ferry motor was certainly less than the chaos and noise of his first parade. Yet those elements together were a lot to ask of him. The ferry ride was almost ten minutes long, a very long time for him to stand still and wait for it to be over if it scared him. I wasn't too worried about him trying to jump the low railing of the ferry, because he avoids touching water whenever he can. Even in a panic, he probably wouldn't try to leap into a river. Before boarding, I watched the ferry do a complete circuit and tried to visualize ways to make it the least scary experience possible for him. If I failed to get him on the ferry, it would be a two-day detour to get to the next bridge along the river. If I did get him loaded, but he freaked out, one of us could get hurt, or at least very wet. Finally, the moment of truth. The waiting cars were all loaded on the ferry, and it was our turn. I exuded confidence to encourage him to follow, and walked up the ramp. He got to the edge of the ramp, following behind me, and froze, but only for a second, to give it a better look. One big leap, and he was on. Of course, the first leap resulted in a loud clang when his feet hit the metal. But he calmed down from that in a few steps. He followed me to the railing so I could tie him down for the journey, which would be safer than me holding him if he got jiggy. The boat got underway at as slow and quiet a speed as the captain could manage. Slowly we glided across the river. Apollo just stood there, looking like he was enjoying the view. What had I been so worried about? Apollo was ready to be a sailor. This one's called, Would You Sleep Here? Let me show you the guest room before you agree to stay there, my hostess warned me. You might not like it. I'd been given many such warnings before, but usually from self-conscious hosts who fear their guest accommodations are too small, too cluttered, too hot, or too cold. I'm used to sleeping in a tent, a stall, or an old barn office couch, though, so such concerns don't bother me. 
I explained this to her, but she insisted. It was my son's room, she said. He hasn't finished moving his stuff out of here to his new place yet. Some people find his decorations creepy. The room was in the basement with all the usual creepy basement noises. This was not the source of the creepy feels, though. The life-sized replica of a screaming man looming over the bed was. It's Han Solo, frozen in carbonite, I exclaimed. Awesome! My hostess looked relieved. Most people don't know who that is, and they don't like it staring at them while they sleep. I reached out and touched the replica's hand. It was a quality reproduction of the movie prop, and I could see every fingerprint on his clawing hands. Good thing I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, I thought. It was definitely the strangest bedside decoration I'd ever seen, and I would absolutely have found it unnerving if I didn't know the movie it was from. The last story I'd like to read to you today is actually a twofer that I'll just run right into the second one, starting with The Most Beautiful Ride. There are a lot of frequently asked questions about my ride, but the number one question is definitely, what's your favorite place? Well, I hate picking favorites, but if I had to, the most breathtakingly beautiful place I've ridden through so far would be Bear Swamp State Forest in upstate New York. I had planned my route to go through the forest because it was the second shortest route possible to get where I needed to go. The shortest would have taken us along a busy highway for many miles. The closer we got to the forest boundary, the less maintained the roads were. By the time we entered the forest, there was only a very rutted double-track jeep trail, overgrown with grasses and wildflowers, except where loose rocks were so thickly washed over the road that nothing would grow. Yet by horse, this only added to its charm, and certainly reduced the traffic. It was a truly wild place in the heart of New York, vibrant, with flowers getting their last hurrah before winter, the leaves just starting to turn gold here and there, and birdsong filling the air. When we reached the top of the pass we were climbing, the view was simply magnificent. A few times I wondered if I was lost, or if the road would disappear entirely, but I decided it didn't really matter. If I was going to get stuck somewhere, what a pleasant place to be. Too soon, though, we started seeing houses again, and the road began to look like a road, and then was asphalt. We had made it through, and I was sorry to leave it behind. Little did I know that one more adventure lay just another mile ahead. I was still smiling from that beautiful ride through the forest when I headed into the tiny town of Dorlu, which consisted in its entirety of a few houses and an old church. An old church with just two words spelled out across the front, Glove Museum. How could I resist stopping? It turned out to be the most fascinating little museum I've ever visited, including that time I stopped at the museum with the world's biggest boot, and the other one with the collection of antique handcuffs. It's run by Daniel Storto, one of the only custom glove makers in the world, who has done work for many celebrities, Vogue, and other fancy glove customers. Mr. Storto gave the tours himself, and is a treasure beyond anything in the museum, although the exhibits are wonderful as well. Anything you want to know about the history or manufacture of gloves, he has the answer. It's a tiny museum, just the nave of the church, although if you ask him, he'll also show you his work area in the vestry, too. He maintains a regular studio and showroom in nearby Gloversville, but opens the museum for limited weekend hours to share his passion with the public. 
The museum contains all sorts of history and oddities, such as old glove forms, examples of traditional embroidery patterns, and all kinds of gloves from functional to artistic to itty-bitty Barbie gloves. Although you could easily see the whole museum in 10 minutes, it's that small. I stayed well over an hour to listen to the master of gloves. What a wonderful surprise to end my beautiful day. If you are listening to this podcast before March 22nd of 2020, be sure to listen also to episodes one and three and answer the listener questions to be entered for a chance to win a signed copy of volume four of Have Horse Will Travel short stories, some of which you just heard. Each of these three episodes contains a different question for you to answer, and anyone who answers all three questions will be entered for a chance to win that book. Today's question is for you to share your horse or animal stories. They don't have to be horse stories. They can be dog or cat or elephant or reptile or whatever story you have. Share with me your favorite animal story that you have personally experienced. You can do that on Facebook or any of the other social media platforms that I'm on, which you can find by visiting my website. There is a link for that website in the podcast description. And it is www.centaurride.org, C-E-N-T-A-U-R-I-D-E. So share your story, listen to the other two podcasts, answer those questions, and win. Thank you for listening. I hope you have enjoyed my stories. Please keep listening to more episodes of Have Horse, Will Travel. And until next time, bye-bye.